Hey guys, Abel here, and I'd like to tell you that our SSD training and nutritional program that we've been hinting at here and there will be coming out as of August 27, 2018, and is now available for pre-sale. So if you go to sustainableselfdevelopment.com slash SSD program, you can get the full package plus some bonuses at a pre-sale price. But I'd actually recommend that you go over to sustainableselfdevelopment.com, plug in your email address there, and you'll receive an email shortly, which will get you a discount even on the pre-sale price. So I think that's a pretty sweet deal personally. So if you enjoyed listening to the nutritional and training concepts we've been talking about here for a while, then I would recommend that you go ahead and check this program out at the links we provided at the show notes. Okay, so um, that's enough of the shameless plugging for now, and let's get into this Q&A with Berge. Uh, this is our, our eighth Q&A with Berge, and we are going to answer 11 or 10, actually, of your questions in this one. We had a lot of cool ones coming on on training, nutrition, and lifestyle again. So, um, yeah, let's not waste time and let's get into it. So, uh, first question that we are going to answer here, uh, which is directed to Berge, is... Is it when is it better to do more sets as opposed to more weight? So I guess it's the volume progression as opposed to load progression sort of issue. Well, uh, I think this is a viable strategy if you can't increment the loads, and uh, usually that's due to some connective tissue and joint issues. So if you're older, if you have uh, you know reoccurring joint issues, like I tend to do in my hips and uh, shoulders, since I'm an old guy. Then uh, for some exercises, I tend to just cap the increments at a certain level. So once I get into like a six to eight rep range, I just, you know, depending on the exercise selection and, and on some isolation exercises and stuff, I don't increment the loads further. Um, I, I also think that if you're training submax, you can definitely add more volume. As most studies comparing training to failure versus non-failure has shown that if you go to failure, then usually two to three sets tend to max out protein synthesis in a given workout. If you don't go to failure, if you train submax, then uh, you should for sure compensate for that by adding slightly more sets. It doesn't take a lot more volume, and th that tends to be where these discussions uh, and, and debates end up, that people almost imply that you should double or triple the volume, but for, for, for like this one particular study, I can't remember the reference offhand right now, but where the three sets to failure group had the best growth and three sets non-failure at the same loads had inferior growth, just doing one more set equalized the, the muscle growth that you got. So that's just like 30% more volume. It's not, it's not 200 or 300% more volume. So, so it, it, it doesn't take a lot to, to, to get more growth um, out of submaximal volume, to, to put it that way. And, and yeah, there was also one study at the equivalent loads where five sets of five was slightly inferior, but almost equal to three sets to failure. And, and that was almost the same total reps. So they achieved like 25 total reps. Um, so, so again, this, this goes back to that whole stimulating effective reps concept. Again, that's not saying that at a certain point you're getting 100% effective you know, growth promoting reps and that the first rep of a set is completely ineffective. I have never said that at all. It's just like a incremental effectiveness of each rep as you get closer to failure. And, and um, the last fatiguing reps where you're exerting yourself against the loads is, is uh, going to 
promote the most um, disturbance of the internal environment of the cell and also the, the stretch of, uh, of the, the tissue and thus uh, the signaling um, associated with that. Um, so, so yeah, I guess that's, that would be my answer, that whenever you can't increment the loads beyond a certain point due to various factors, you can definitely add volume uh, through more sets. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I, I found anecdotally that sometimes you just get stagnating or we're stagnated or plateaued on a given lift and you're just grinding harder and harder and sometimes then training a bit more submaximally and adding maybe a set and then trying again to overload sometimes works out. But yeah. I, sh I should add, though, that having done this myself and having had many people do that, just keep adding volume when growth, uh, you know, seems to have slowed down or stopped. Uh, it's it's at some point you you know just 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 keep in mind that maybe adding one or two sets is, is usually going to be sufficient, but you know going to super high volumes is most likely going to be detrimental, because then again you would run into connective tissue problems as you you start loading, like the muscle is really plastic, but the connective tissue and, and joints is usually the limiting factor in how much, both how much volume you can do and how heavy you can train and all that stuff. So 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 yeah, just listen to your body to use that old cliche <laughs> yeah definitely cool uh yeah so let's go on to the next question let's be efficient here so um we were trying to interpret this question beforehand uh so what would be what would be your advice to little burger when who started out lifting so well it it says for the little boger who want to start okay. lifting <laughs> <laughs> so i'm not sure the, the little is, is that like a slang for the, yeah. the little bugger you know <laughs> Maybe he knows uh, a guy guy called Bugger, and uh, what's your advice to him when he starts lifting? But I guess the question is, what what is something you wish you knew when you started lifting? I would definitely scale down the volume considerably, because uh, funnily enough, I started training. Uh, I, I probably mentioned this in, in previous podcasts, but I started training uh, on a high frequency approach. That was the serious growth by Leo Costa at the time, which was modeled off of uh, Phil Hernan's routines and and. Um, the interest, like he, he said, this was from Bulgaria. They had studied Bulgarian lifters and, and went to Bulgaria and all that stuff. And that might have, have some core of truth to it, but it was mostly just a copy off of what Phil Hernan was doing at the time. And he was also their like front figure. I've talked with Phil Hernan many times and I even used him as a coach for a while. So I know what Phil Hernan was doing and, and these guys just completely messed it up. So basically, basically he was doing every muscle group two to three times per week. Uh, with three sets. So this would be very similar to our reverse pyramid training scheme where you just did like the first set between six to nine reps, uh, drop 10% loads, did one more set, drop 10% load and did the last set. Didn't have to be drop sets. Like you could take as much rest as you wanted. So you could end up doing like a set of eight, set of 12, set of 20 or something or set of 15 or whatever. There was three sets and, and that was like my time would, would fill when I trained that program was really effective. But when I started training, there would be like a volume progression built into this. There would be a variation in, in rep ranges from day to day, so daily undulating periodization. And, and for me at that level of advancement was just way too much. I did get some pretty good results, I guess, um, but I also horribly overtrained. I went to the gym like six times per week on, it wasn't like an upper lower split. It was this weird split where you did like triceps with shoulders and then 
quads and I, I can't remember, but it was, I think it started at, like at two to three sets per muscle group and ended up at five to six sets per muscle group. So oh. at that time that was like 15 to 18 sets per muscle group and, and with a lot of compound lifts and stuff. And I just, you know, the usual, I had great results for a while and then just crashed really hard. I could barely get off the couch. I mean, I was so, not that I was constantly sore, but I was just so tired all the time. Um, and added to that, I ate like a horse. I mean, I even had the, the bag in front of my face, basically just inhaling food. So it's, it's not like when people say, well, uh, overtraining is, is, uh, is under eating or something like that. And I mean, I was, I was making these crazy concoctions of rice and eggs and cheese and, and meat and all that stuff just to get in as much calories as possible. I got up to 120 kilos at the most. And, uh, well, I, I wouldn't say I was fat, but I had probably 20, 22% body fat. So that was like bulking, really bulking yeah. and, and trying my best to get as big as possible as quickly as possible. And so looking back at it now, I wish I would have taken the sustainable route. I wish I would have known what I know today about how to get, like it's not about getting from A to B as fast as possible. It's, it's figuring out something that you can just enjoy doing. And, and uh, again, investing your time and effort smartly in, instead of just blowing it all in a certain direction and, and hoping that you will end up uh, rich, big, muscular, successful, and sexy. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't work like that. So, so yeah, that will definitely be my advice. Just, you know, stay the course and, and find a more viable training volume and, and uh, take some days off, take some weeks off when you feel like it. I, I, I do remember one insight I had at, at the time was when I would, I would get sick all the time, obviously, since I was so horribly overtrained. <laughs> And I would have to take like one or maybe up to two weeks off, mm. came back to the gym and I was a lot stronger. And mm. my muscle just seemed to grow before my eyes. And again, just reconfirming the, the current belief I have about having pre-planned even rest series or rest weeks or two weeks of rest. Uh, but at the time I, I just, well, maybe I should try training for eight to 12 weeks and taking a week off and see, you know, be proactive. and and. So, so yeah, at the time I had some intuition about stuff, but I wasn't super smart about it. Bam. Yeah. It is good to know that not only I was OCD. Uh, at some point. <laughs> no, not at all. I was the worst of them. Cool. Yeah. Well, all I can say is that I used to, if I needed to take a day off from the gym, that I would do a two, two a day the day before to make up for it. So yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I would do the same sometimes. It was just that it was like a, I can't re remember the distance, but it was a bike ride of uh, maybe half an hour every way to the gym, each way to the gym. And I would I would ride that bike no matter the weather or, or if it was like 50 centimeters or, of snow covering the roads and there was a wind and, and there were no cars driving on the streets. But I rode my damn bike to the gym just to get in that workout. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Nice one. Cool. Uh, okay, so next question. This is going to be a short one, I think. I'm probably we addressed this, but maybe not as explicitly. So, what is the best body fat range during cutting and bulking? Yeah, again, I don't prescribe to the whole cut and bulk mindset at all. But I, I generally think for health, you should uh, 
as a guy stay within eight to fifteen percent body fat. This can be this is genetic and and also related to what you have been doing since childhood. So it it can be programmed over time as well. Uh, so I I tend to call it a settling point, body fat settling point. And you will generally notice being at the lower end of it when um, uh, when your hormones start to crash and your energy levels start to crash. Uh, but there are ways of getting it into really low body fat percentage range without crashing your hormones. It just takes more time and, and not having the cut mindset at all. And on the other side of the spectrum, when you when you bulk and you start noticing that um, well that you're getting fat, but also that your insulin sensitivity is worsening, that you're getting more like sleepy and lethargic after eating, and uh, you you're, you're feeling sluggish and more heavy, and it's you know and you can't see your and the outline of of your abs anymore, then that, that's probably a good time to start, you know. Um, being more aware of what you're actually eating. Uh, for women, that number will be seven to nine percent higher, simply because they're women and they have more essential fats. So from fifteen to yeah, like twenty-five percent, maybe twenty-three, twenty-four percent would be a good range for women to stay within. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I have pretty much nothing to add. Um, and if anybody is curious, like this topic was covered, like a lot of times on, on my YouTube channel um, and on the podcast and talked about it with people like Eric Helms as well. And so you can get all kinds of different perspectives on this if you're so inclined. So that's all I'm going to add on that one. Uh, so the next question is an interesting one, which is uh, speaking of Eric Helms. So Eric Helms is one person who talks about these tiers of like, uh, in terms of adherence, it can, can be good, it can be better, and it can be best. And Best would be in the in the context of a contest prep diet, for example, hitting all of your macronutrient targets. And good would be, for example, hitting protein and calories. And okay would be just to um, weigh in every day and just hitting your protein target or something like that. So, um, what what is your thoughts on this? Like, do you think that there is a, a hierarchy in terms of what's most optimal in terms of being precise with your intake of macros and, and calories? I can go both ways on this question because I mean the whole point of being sustainable is that it, you can put it on autopilot and not have to track and measure everything. I mean, let's face it, that's why most of us are here in this group at all because we're sick and tired of doing that constantly. Constantly have to think about how many reps should I do? How many sets should I do? Am I twisting my little pinky finger the right way when doing bicep curls? Uh, should I eat 176 grams of protein or 192 grams? I mean, uh, what the fuck? I mean, uh, don't you ever, don't you guys ever get tired of that shit? This whole good, better, best thing? Do you, do you live your life doing stuff like that all the time? Okay, did I kiss my girlfriend in, in a good, better, or best way this time? I mean, okay, uh, I can, I can see the point of the question, but it, it does indicate that someone needs to stop micromanaging shit because yeah. it's, it's not going to be sustainable are you gonna die of old age and regret not having measured all the macros or micros or whatever uh no i think or i know that most people die of old age having regrets about not spending more time with their family and seeing the world having more experiences is usually the biggest regret so Okay, I, I, I can say this. The program is structured in a way that you can have a, 
anywhere from two to six days of training per week. You can even jump from two to six days of training per week. I will explain how to maximize the growth process with a minimum time investment, meaning that it's going to be the optimal. I mean, the optimal for this purpose. If you go to the gym and want to know that this is going to be an effective workout, then this program is structured in such a way. And there's also a form and a function to the overall structure of the program, which will ensure that each workout is better than the last one. So, so I can tell you that much, uh, but it's not going to be like, okay, you are good enough if you do this and you are better and best if you do this. Because then we're getting into the whole do as much volume as possible, bulk as hard as possible and cut as hard as possible, I think, where you just micromanage everything to the, to the smallest detail. And I can say for sure that some people may get better results for a short amount of time micromanaging stuff. But then life meets optimal and shit hits the literal fan. So I, I think we need to get to a point, which is the, why I'm even doing this shit, where we stop being so obsessive about getting everything optimal and correct and just trust the process. You have a certain guideline of foods you should eat and you begin to become more aware of what your body is telling you, your instincts and intuition is telling you. Uh, how do you feel after eating? How do you feel after the workout? Are you getting stronger? Do you feel good? I mean, yeah, for sure. You can have uh, like a, a, a five-page blood panel, uh, which is a snapshot of whatever, you know, physiological state you were in at the time of the blood test. But I'm not going to have a blood test tell me that, hey, you should feel like crap because your LDL level is elevated when I feel awesome and I feel much better than when my LDL level was lower. I mean, why do people stop listening to their bodies or, or even being aware of how they feel and, and, and start focusing on numbers and tables and micros and macros? I mean, it's, it's a crazy world. Um, I, some, sometimes I have days where I'm just so fucking fed up with this whole training and dieting shit because I see so many people ruining their results and not getting anywhere because they are micromanaging and trying to be optimal all the time. And, and then you have some of the people that are, you know, looking great and feeling great and, and they're not even thinking about the shit. So I think there's a lesson in there somewhere. Uh, I, I do think you should be aware of uh, effective strategies the same way I want to be aware of where to invest my money. You know, and I, I want to get the knowledge from someone who knows what they're doing so that I can invest my money to get the best profits from that investment. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sort of pour my effort and energy in all types of direction if it's not going to, you know, make me happy at the end of the day or not even the day, but the end of my life. So that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll drop I'll, I'll drop the microphone for you. <laughs> yeah, but I mean for sure. Yeah, that's there's going to be perhaps some hierarchy of importance, but there's going to be guidelines and and the rest is something the the main learning that people need to get away from this is becoming more aware and more in tune with their own bodies and stop being on social media to have someone tell them what to do all the time. Yeah. And, and the only thing I would add to that is that if people have this uh, cognitive dissonance while listening to this, like how come Berge is saying this and 
Eric Helms says something else, you have to remember that Eric Helms is talking about that in the context of bodybuilders getting ready to a bodybuilding contest. And we are talking about people using training and nutrition to enhance their lives in other domains. So that's a very different demographic. demographic. So, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, let's. Uh, I'll skip a couple of these questions uh, that come up because uh, there are some more important ones and I want to be sure that uh, we will get everything on time that are, is important here. So excuse the cliche, says the question, but what kinds of lifestyle changes would be considered the lowest hanging fruit or quick wins as well as the kinds of things that provide less but still significant positive results. Um, yeah, so what are simple but um, effective lifestyle changes that people can start implementing to get better results? Okay, I think off the top of my head, that would be getting some more regularity in sleep and wake cycles. Uh, the body tends to thrive on regularity. So even having your meals within the same period of time the same time every day um, and and also like not having a huge variance between your weekday sleep patterns and your weekend sleep patterns tend to help um, getting sufficient sun sunlight um, and getting sufficient but not overdoing activity I mean I see all of these people that have read too much uh, you know clickbait titles and so on social media and, and start to, to try to get 10,000 and 20,000 steps per day I mean I, I think our ancestors were very smart with their energy because calories were so scarce that they would spend even if, if you study like modern hunter-gatherers tribes and societies it's not it's not like they're burning tons of calories by moving all the time they're conserving calories as much as possible and only expending calories when they need to so so uh, I, I think getting some um, activity outside in, in fresh air and daylight is very important but but only to the point where you feel where it, where it actually makes you energetic and it doesn't take more than maybe 20 or 30 minutes even spread out into 10 to 15 minute walks so it's not like you need to do one or two or three hours of activity and because it tends to turn into training you know exercise exercise for I mean, for what purpose? I, I, um, so, so yeah, that would be the lowest hanging fruits, I think. Um, having some cycles in your stress stress management instead of being constantly on and constantly productive. I think having periods during every day where you just do. I mean, I would. It would probably be optimal to do some meditation. I will admit that I'm not good at doing that, but having some time to, for introspection and reflection, I think is a very good way to to split up your day. Uh, it, it's been proven, and I think all all of us know that we can be focused and productive for more than maybe one hour at a time before we we start to you know get tired or, or our, our focus tends to drift. So so splitting up, having some shorter work periods, and, and then with a good conscious, having some rest and relaxation will be way more effective than just constantly working and thinking that every result is 100% correlated with the, the time and effort you invest into it. Because that's not the way the world works in any any regard. Not training, not diet, not productivity or, or being a good husband or father or, or uh, whatever. So... Um, for energy levels, stress management and circadian rhythm management is, is uh, very important. Yeah. 
I, I would add one nutrition thing, which I talked about at nauseum, which is uh, just mindful eating, which uh, for me in practice really just means not eating in front of my laptop or in front of TV or whatever. So just uh, sitting down, enjoying a meal and focusing on it, it just solves so many problems that I would have to like really micromanage earlier. And by doing that, it just gets solved automatically for me. So I think we, I think we should do mindful everything. Yeah, just, just be present and in the moment of whatever the fuck you're doing, whether it's eating or sex or exercise or whatever. Now people are just on their phone and or, or on social media or distracting themselves constantly. And that's yeah. driving stress through the roof. <laughs> yeah, like um, working when you're working, not being distracted by Facebook all the time. And even like I was in Budapest with my girlfriend for like two or three days and we didn't have internet when we were out and we were just kind of forced to just spend time together as opposed to checking what's happening on Instagram or whatever. And oh my God, it was so much better. So, yeah, for sure. That's crazy. Yeah, cool. It's a modern disease. Social media is a modern disease. <laughs> it is. It really is. Yeah. Uh, cool. So a good question here. For someone who cannot sleep more than five hours a day, uh, working two jobs, 48 and then... Um, so I don't know, working two jobs, so a lot of hours and they simply don't have the time to, to sleep. How can I structure my training to be as productive as it can without killing myself? <laughs> I, I would love to address, you know, why someone would do that to themselves, working two jobs. I mean, where did things go so wrong that you actually need to work two jobs to support yourself? Um, but I don't know the person or, or the, the story behind, so I'm not going to go into that. But um I think reinventing yourself would be the first line of defense here. Um, how you can structure your training? I would actually minimize training as much as possible since there is always a balance between stress and recovery. And when your recovery is shit and it's going to be with this little sleep, I mean, there, there, there have been some very good studies showing that this amount of sleep will reduce your muscle growth by 50 to 60% and your fat loss efforts by 50 to 60%. It will prolong your recovery by two to three times as much, both uh, from a neural uh, point of view as well as connective tissue health point of view. And, and just general getting back to baseline strength will take from 24 to 48 hours in in, um, in normal people, in average people with sufficient sleep. But it can take up to three to four days for someone with uh, compromised sleep. So I would probably do two full, full body workouts per week, one to two sets per muscle group. Don't take anything to failure at all. Just stay submax, and th then just get through that tough period of your life, so you, you know, can get to a point where, you know, your life is better, basically. Yeah, and perhaps just offer for people who might be just in a situation where they are just stressed out like crazy, and they might be getting little sleep. Because sometimes even stressing about getting little sleep uh, creates further stress. So maybe just. Address, let's address things like, you know, you can always do things to minimize stress while you're awake, you know, if you, you're going to be awake for that long, you know, meditation and just having routines that minimize stress and those kinds of things will naturally help. So that's just something. Yeah, uh, like 10 to 15 minute naps uh, during your lunch break or the break between those two jobs or whatever, riding the bus from one job to the other. I don't know what you're doing, but yeah, for sure. Getting in those naps and meditation and, and relaxation as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Cool. Um, another question, which is interesting. NSAIDs are generally bad news, especially blunting response to training. So anti-inflammatory uh, drugs, uh, but would they serve as a purpose for short-term use during strategic deconditioning? 
well, I guess we would have to specify for what purpose exactly, but uh, first thoughts upon hearing this? Uh, I'm not really sure what the purpose would be uh, for deconditioning. I mean, the, the, the whole point is to reduce inflammation. And so this is why in healthy subjects, using anti-inflammatories tend to inhibit muscle growth. Uh, whereas in elder people or overweight people or someone with insulin resistance where inflammation is running high, then using NSAIDs are generally promotive of hypertrophy and, and results S simply because there's a sweet spot for everything and getting inflammation into a more manageable range will improve results. So that will mean you shouldn't use them when it's just a sufficient amount of inflammation from a workout as a healthy person. But uh, for someone unhealthy with high inflama inflammatory status, you should use them to get more normal. But during the deconditioning phase, when you're not actually imposing any inflammation from training, uh, I'm not really sure what the purpose of using that should be. Uh, and even then, I mean, I'm not a big fan of using drugs for, um, you know, minimizing pain or whatever. I mean, I have, I've had extensive surgeries and they, they offered me all of these painkillers and I said, well, no, I'm basically just gonna, you know, I, I want to feel what my body is telling me. And, and if my body is telling me that that movement is something I shouldn't be doing, then it's probably wiser to really have that signal present and not, uh, you know, hide it by using drugs. So I don't really see the purpose of using it during a, a phase where you, you are supposed to be resting. Yeah, fair enough. Um, we had a question about cluster training and cluster sets and what do you think their role could be during a hypertrophy uh, training? Well, it's part of the SSD system, the program. So uh, they definitely play a role. Uh, I actually don't agree when, you know, the question states what specific protocols are beneficial since most clusters are associated with power produ production, which it's not of value for hypertrophy. I don't think you can separate the two. You can't completely separate strength and hypertrophy either, simply because doing one will tend to increase the other and so forth. Uh, although I do agree with Jeremy Lonica that you can definitely achieve hypertrophy without increasing strength and vice versa, but I think that's getting into a semantic discussion. Uh, cluster protocols are effective in that they reduce the metabolic stress. So for heavier loading, where you, you are already achieving maximum maximal uh, motor unit recruitment and muscle activation, you don't need to go to failure. So breaking it up into cluster sets, and, and there, there's a couple of good studies looking at um, loading ranges of, I think it was like 80 to 85% of one rep max or six rep max loads. Uh, and they had some definite benefits for hypertrophy as well. You could generally just getting more quality work. You can do more volume at that load without incurring as much muscle damage. Since metabolic stress can also induce uh, muscle damage. So I, I tend to think of them as a very time effective way to get in uh, sufficient volume. Um, I think clusters should um, sort of be, you know, I, I liken them to uh, the end of a MyRub set where you first do the activation set, you know, where you go close to failure on the first set just to get sort of to a certain level of fatigue and then you uh, tie on like sets of three to five reps to manage fatigue and getting a certain volume at that load. Uh, now, 
my reps really shine at loads where you need to do more reps to get closer to uh, that fatigue level. But cluster reps would be a natural extension of my reps, which is why I'm using that in this program. Uh, to get into the heavier ranges where you can rely more on the mechanical stretch and deformation of the tissue to create the signaling, the anabolic signaling for muscle growth. Uh, and it's, again, just a very time effective way of training at that loading range. But doing clusters with like your 10 to 15 rep max is generally not going to be very effective other than for power production. I agree on that. So doing sets of three to five at loads of 80% of one max or more would be my uh, a definite, you know, my, my preferred strategy for uh, getting hypertrophy at that loading range. Yeah, and perhaps you can also handle more volume as opposed to uh, going for those reps, which you typically could go for with like uh, an 80% one rep max kind of load, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and there's like an abrupt switch um, in the program simply because we want a couple of workouts to be like sub-max where, where you just have more reps in reserve and you, you feel more rested and you're able to, to keep training heavy and keep incrementing the loads. But you're probably going to be like in the third workout or so, you're going to be doing cluster sets of three reps with something close to your six rep max load. So, so uh, that that would sort of be, you know, I, I would probably not go uh, all the way into singles if your primary goal is muscle growth. Uh, if you're going into single singles, then we're talking more about strength and power development, and also getting into heavier loads like 90% of one max or so. That's offered as an option in the program, but it's not going to be a requirement for optimal muscle growth. Cool. Perfect. Um, so we had a question about performing optimally and being healthy in uh, cold climates where you have extended periods of not seeing the sun at all and, uh, you know, just being cold. And uh, this is something that you can obviously talk about because you have some pretty rough periods up there in Norway. So uh, so what would your input be on this one? Yeah, just to sort of read the whole question, uh, how to stay healthy and energetic in the winter months living in a very cold, dark northern climate where we see as little as eight hours of daylight per day. Eight hours, you're lucky. I mean, way up north, they have no, uh, basically no daylight. I mean, you don't see the sun uh, for almost a month in December, uh, from December to January. I would uh, actually try to, with modern technology, I think there is value in simulating daylight as much as possible. So I use daylight lamps religiously during the winter months that has a very very noticeable and significant positive effect on my energy levels and wakefulness. Um, I also tend to being way more keto during the winter months. So basically since, yeah, I do have some frozen, you know, berries and veggies here and there once in a while, but this is uh, a period of time or per, uh, like a season where traditionally we would never have access to to like plant foods, um, in ex in like an abundance of plant foods. So keto diets actually tend to work better during the colder, darker months as well. Um, I also would like to remind people that, that we get some very beneficial adaptations from cold hormesis, which means that you should actually try to expose yourself to those cold temperatures during the winter months. I think 
clothing up and turning up the heat indoors just to sort of compensate for everything being cold and dark is, is maybe limiting more than helping. I'm not saying that you should sit indoors and freeze all, all day, but I definitely think you should um, sort of maintain that ability to withstand cold temperatures by using cold showers during the summer months. But as you get into like autumn and fall and winter, go outside. I, I would often like just jump outside naked. Of course, not yeah. in, uh, in the neighborhood here where people can see me, but, you know, go outside and actually freeze a little. Just expose myself to cold temperatures. Go out on the balcony in the like cold mornings and, and uh, get some of that cold exposure. Not turn up the heat excessively and thus saving some energy, uh, helping the planet. Yeah. Uh, so, so maintain the indoor temperature around twenty degrees, perhaps eighteen to twenty degrees. It does take some time getting used to, but and and you will have people coming to your house saying, "Oh my God, it's so cold here," and, and you're like. But I, I don't really notice that at all. But <laughs> there are some actual physiological changes going on during the winter months when it's cold and dark that we humans can benefit from if we live in that climate. So I think exposing yourself to that would be a, a good idea and help you stay healthy and energetic. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned um, not turning up the heating at all and being cold or or like you mentioned it jokingly that you don't recommend doing that but it's funny because i was in new zealand for a year and a half and that's exactly what people did in the winter months like i was living in the student city and they were trying to save money on electricity of course and they just didn't heat and I, we were freezing in the winter like it was crazy um but yeah i will be i mean eight hours that's pretty much the standard i think in europe like in most places i mean the sun will come up somewhere around 7 a.m or something and around 5 p.m it will pretty much be cold so it's uh you don't have to live in a whatever northern uh area to experience something like that so I, I will be curious how it is going to be now that i will be more on the carnivorous side in the winter months so i'm curious if i will notice a difference um cool so i think we pretty much went through all of the questions we had so that's pretty sweet because we were trying to keep this at, at around 45 minutes this time so um yeah do we have something to add here um at the end of this webinar no, I'm not sure, but I think, uh, you know, with uh, just a week to go before we launch the program, I would, uh, you know, hope that people get in as quickly as possible, either opt into our list so they can get the 20% discount code or uh, just, you know, I'm, I'm sure you will put a link in the show notes, but at least check out the, the program and see if it's something for you. And uh, for, at this price, I mean, fuck, I... I, I I've seen products at the same price range, and I just the other day I bought this like ebook at forty nine dollars on on some sort of diet. It was a fucking ten page document with yeah. like four of those pages on copyright and whatever. Wow. And so so yeah, like six pages of actual content for forty nine dollars. So it's just crazy shit out there, and and with this you're actually getting some value for money yeah yeah so guys uh 27th of august at least according to all plans is when the launch is coming along and we are super stoked about that and uh you can go to the links that will be provided here but it's sustainable self-development.com ssd program you can uh, pre-order and uh, you can sign up for our list uh at sustainable self-development.com to get an even bigger discount so it's a pretty massive bargain as Berge mentioned and we're super stoked about that one 
So um, yeah, that's the plug for the end. And with that, uh, thanks for everybody for tuning in for this webinar. And yeah, uh, see you all in the next one. See you.